My mother, Wilma, who lives in West Michigan, she works in mediation services. She helps people reconcile their fights before they ever hire lawyers and drag each other to court. She's been doing this for a couple of years now, and I remember when she first started, she told me about her first clients and what a surprise she got. It was two next-door neighbors. They lived right next to each other, but they were having a dispute about where exactly the property line falls. Now, I know this sort of dispute never happens here in Greenwich, but in other parts of the world, sometimes people argue over where their property lines land. And my mom remembers she met with, let's call him neighbor number one. Neighbor number one sat down with my mom across the table, and he leaned across the table and he said, you would not believe how horrible neighbor number two has been treating me. He's selfish, he's irrational, he's just a vile human being. So my mom took the whole story in, and then it came time for her to have the meeting with neighbor number two. And she was afraid to meet the guy after the description she had received from neighbor number one. But my mom was surprised when neighbor number two walked in the door. He was perfectly calm and articulate and a peaceable guy. And he sat down across the table from her, and he leaned across, and he said, you won't believe neighbor number one, how he's been mistreating me. Selfish, irrational, he's just a vile human being. And my mom was surprised to learn this truth that Psalm 73 also reveals which is that sin is quite easy to see in the other, even while it blinds itself from us. You see, both neighbor number one and neighbor number two were right about the other. They both had been acting irrationally and selfishly and in a vile manner, but each one could not see his own sin in the equation. We come now to our second week of studying Psalm chapter 73, written by a man named Asaph. He was a musician in the temple in Jerusalem, and he discovered some things in the sanctuary of God. You see, if you want to use this um, handout, you can navigate towards the text, or you can look at it in your Bible. If you were here last week, you recall that in verse 17, Asaph gets a whole new perspective simply by walking into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary serves for Asaph and for us like a spiritual car wash, like a car wash for the soul. We drive around the world with our windshield just totally caked in the grime of the world. We have a warped perspective. We can't see clearly. But in the sanctuary, in verse 17, as Asaph shows us, we can get a whole new perspective. We can see clearly. Last week, we covered how Asaph was viewing others. If you were here, you remember that he had a lineup. He had a parade of horrible people that he was bringing before God, saying, God, don't you see how wicked they are? When are you going to curse them? And then he goes into the sanctuary, and he looks back, and he has a whole new view of them. And now he has pity on them, and he has mercy for them. You see what happened in the sanctuary? He got a whole new perspective. Today, we're going to look at Asaph's view of his own self how he sees in his pre-sanctuary worldview nothing but righteousness in his own heart and wickedness in others. But then when he goes into the sanctuary, things become more clear to him. He can see his own sin. This is a common thing for human beings to see the sin clearly in the other, but to be blind to it in our own selves. This is why Jesus said this amazing thing where he said, why are you concerned? about the speck in your neighbor's eye. 
when you have a log in your own. He says, first, remove the log in your own eye, and then you can begin working on the speck in your neighbor's. Jesus was right. It's a pretty vivid illustration that Jesus gave. The log that's in our own eye, it actually blinds us to its presence. It's so big that we can't even see it. Until we go into the sanctuary of God. So let's look at this together today. Let's look at Asaph, this worship leader, this follower of God, how he viewed himself pre-sanctuary and how he viewed himself post-sanctuary experience. Let's begin with his pre-sanctuary view of himself. It's in verse 13. Actually, I'll start with 12 because it's at the conclusion of his complaint about other people in verse 12 and then by contrast, the way he views himself. So let's begin with verse 12. Behold, God... These are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now he turns to himself in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Poor Asaph. You remember from last week the theological truth that he begins his prayer with in verse 1, where he says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is his theological assumption that he enters the prayer with. God is good to people who are pure in heart. If I have a pure heart, God will be good to me. Remember from last week, he ran into trouble, though, because he saw people who were not good in heart, yet they were receiving material blessing. And he was basically saying, where's mine, oh God? And now we come to his own view of himself. He's being quite bold in this prayer in verse 13. I guess I have a pure heart all in vain. Because instead of receiving blessings for all my righteousness, instead of receiving more marshmallows in my cup, what do I get for my clean heart? Rebuke. Poor Ace. This is kind of cringeworthy, these two verses. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Oh, Asaph. And he says he's washed his hands in innocence. This is probably a reference to following the whole law. He washed his hands in innocence all in vain. He's been so obedient to God. He's been so righteous. And has God noticed? No, I did it all for naught. You see, he's able to count all of his own righteous deeds and count all the unrighteous deeds of the people in his life. Asaph had working for him an inner lawyer. Does anyone here have an inner lawyer? <laughs> always defending your own actions, always accusing the other people in your life. It might be time to fire the inner lawyer today. Asaph had one working for him round the clock. I have one. And I want to illustrate this with a little bit of an embarrassing story from my own life. Do you ever, those of you who are married, do you ever have one of these late night arguments where you're both just so tired and worn out and you find yourself in this little argument? No? No one else has that? <laughs> wow. Well, you're about to learn about one from me and Nancy, the only people in the room who ever have that, I guess. This is really embarrassing. This is just last week. And, um, all of a sudden, it was just super late. We're super tired. We're having this little, you know, tit-for-tat argument. And I, in my infinite humility, I offered the opinion that I think I do more dishes. 
than she does throughout the week. I have no idea why I said that, okay, but I did, I confess. And she retorted, not a chance. I do more dishes than you do throughout the week. And I thought, doesn't she notice when I do the dishes? And yet she thought she did, and so I actually started doing the math on it. I started thinking about (laughs) Monday through Sunday. Yeah, we're still in this illustration, okay? We're still going here. I thought about this. How, how many dishes do I do? How many dishes does she do? And it's probably around the same. By the way, she gave me permission to use this illustration, but she said, you can tell them this illustration as long as you also mention that she actually does more dishes than me. <laughs> Inner lawyer working for you. And I figured it out. It's probably about the same, but here's what's going on. When I'm doing the dishes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing it, right? I'm kind of counting my righteous deed. I'm doing the dishes. What a good dad and husband I am. And when she's doing the dishes, I'm off doing something else. I'm not counting her washing the dishes, but she is. And so we both think by the end of the week that we've done more dishes. It's a silly illustration, I realize. But it shows, it reveals how we tend to count our own righteous deeds and not the righteous deeds of others. But even more deeply than that, sin has a way of just revealing itself clearly in the people in our lives, but hiding itself from us. I love verse 15 where Asaph says, it's almost like he says, did I just say that out loud? He says in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see, he realizes his inner lawyer was suddenly talking out loud when he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. But then seriously, in the second part of that verse, he says, if I actually talked this way, if I revealed this part of my prayer out loud, I would be leading people astray. I would betray a generation of God's children. Remember, he's a worship leader. He has influence. That's when he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, it's possible that you're hearing this sermon series and you're thinking, you know who needs to hear these sermons? (laughs) And you've got someone in your mind. Yeah, if you're laughing right now, I know you're guilty about this. It's actually hard for us, it's easy for us to think about who needs to hear a message like this, who needs to have their sins revealed to them. That's our inner lawyer talking. The Bible is quite clear. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. That includes me and that includes you. But oftentimes our own sin is hidden from us until we go into the sanctuary, until we go into God's presence, because in God's presence, all sin is exposed. In the presence of holy, transcendent God, who among us can match his holiness? None of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Asaph discovers when he goes into the sanctuary. Let's read now from his viewpoint in the sanctuary. How he looks at his own self. Again, remember, pre-sanctuary, it was all righteousness and pureness, all for naught. Now let's look in verse 21 about how he views himself. Here's what it says. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. My soul was embittered. He was bitter. Remember this amazing deep psychology that Asaph revealed in verse 3 where he said, I was envious of the arrogant. 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Which one was it, Asaph? Are they wicked or are you envious of them? And he says, both. And because of that, it led to bitterness. And remember, pre-sanctuary, when he looked at his heart, he saw nothing but a clean heart. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Now he looks at his heart again. What does he see? He says, I was pricked in heart. My heart wasn't clean at all. It had a thorn in it, the thorn of bitterness. And Asaph realizes in the sanctuary when his sin is exposed, he sees the log in his own eye. And he realizes, remember, pre-sanctuary, he had that lineup. He had that parade of evidence, the parade of horribles, like a lineup of criminals he was bringing out before God. God, do you see them? Their bodies are fat and sleek. Their, their tongue struts through the earth. Pride is their necklace. And now in the sanctuary, he looks at his own heart and he realizes, I belong in that lineup. My sin was hidden from myself, but it's just as ugly as any sin I named before. And Asaph now, he's fully exposed before God as a sinner. He realizes he belongs in the lineup of horribles. And in his own formula, remember, he began the psalm by saying, God's good to those who are pure in heart. The implication is God curses those who are not pure in heart. And now in the sanctuary, Asaph realizes, I deserve curse, not blessing. My soul is embittered. My heart has a thorn in it. I deserve curse. And then the next verse is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, verse 23, this first word of verse 23, well, it's the gospel. You see, Asaph realizes he's a sinner. He belongs in the lineup. He deserves curse. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you, he says, looking, looking boldly at the God of grace, looking humbly at the God of grace. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You see, his relationship with God has now changed. We're going to talk about this more in two weeks. But in the first part of the psalm where he's pre-sanctuary mindset, and he's looking, he's saying, God, why doesn't your hand come down and smite the wicked? And now he realizes he is one of the wicked. And look at the hand of God he sees in the sanctuary. It's reaching down, not to smite him, but to guide him. This is the God of grace. This is the God of the nevertheless. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, when it says, all of us have sinned, we've all been gone astray, like all the people of the world, we're children of wrath, we're dead in our sins, but nevertheless, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. This is not our own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's the same word, but nevertheless, when we realize we are sinners, we're dead in our sins, we need the nevertheless God to reach his hand down into the sanctuary, not to condemn, not to smite, but to guide us. And then in verse 24, this beautiful word, you, O oh God, will receive me into glory. You see, in his pre-sanctuary theological worldview, he thought the only people who were received, the only people who were accepted, were the people who measured up, the people who had all the righteous deeds. And now he realizes his righteous deeds, he realizes the same thing Isaiah realized. When Isaiah said, all our righteousness 
Do you know what it's worth? What did Isaiah say? Filthy rags. You see, Asaph now looks at his own behavior pre-sanctuary, his pre-sanctuary view. He thought he was so righteous. He thought he was so holy. And now he realizes that righteousness is worth about the same as a pile of rags. And he sees something else that's interesting. He says, I was like a beast toward you. That's an amazing confession. Pre-sanctuary, Asaph really had himself in a superhuman position. Look at all my righteousness. Look at all my superhero deeds that I do, oh God. Why don't you judge them? He's looking down on the wicked. He's got himself in a superhuman position. Now he looks back at his own behaviors and he says, I wasn't superhuman at all. I was subhuman. I was like a beast toward you, oh God. In the sanctuary of God, all sin is exposed. Even our supposed righteousness is exposed for what it is. It can be arrogance, self-righteousness, pride, judgmentalism. We act like beasts towards God, not superhuman. Asaph realizes in the sanctuary he deserves God's curse, but instead he gets God's blessing. And how do we get received into glory? How do we receive the nevertheless? It's through the cross of Christ. I want to show you something in the text that is just so remarkable. It's so beautiful and amazing. Asaph's confession reveals much. Let's go back to verse 21 and 22, and I want to show you how this points right to the cross. This is his confession. He says, when my soul was embittered, that word embittered in Hebrew It's the same word for sour wine or vinegar. Do you know who was served sour wine on the cross? Our Lord. Jesus had a spear driven into his heart. His heart became the one pricked by the accusations of the world. Jesus was treated like a beast. In fact, he was treated like a lamb led to the slaughter. You see, Jesus takes on, he absorbs the sin of the whole world. He absorbs, it's not just the sin of all the criminals out there. It's not just the sin of all the wicked people, the lineup we can have in our mind, the neighbor who wrongs us. It's my sin. It's my bitter heart. When I act like a beast, he takes all of that, he absorbs it onto himself on the cross. By grace, I am set free. By grace, I am saved not because of my own righteousness. If you can't tell, I'm preaching this to my own self. Week after week, we come into this sanctuary. We gather under this cross. We gather under this symbol, and we do something together as a church. We pray a prayer of confession where we confess before God before we go to the communion table. And just for today, Pastor Chuck's going to lead us in confession and communion. And just for today, I've switched up the confession prayer because so often we pray this confession prayer. It's been the same one for about 10 years at least. And the words can just become rote. We just say the confession, oh, Lord, I've sinned against you. And we're maybe not even actually confessing. So for today, we're going back to the classic prayer of confession because I want us to think about the words. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We've not loved our neighbors 
as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Anyone here been embittered? Anyone here been like a beast? Forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be. This is God's hand guiding us, just like Asaph discovered in the sanctuary. So that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. All of us need to pray this prayer of confession, even those of us in these white robes. <laughs> in God's strange timing, someone before the first service came up to me. This is so strange. He came up to me and he said, hey, when you put on that robe, do you feel superhuman? <laughs> and I said, no. I need to come to confession just like all the rest of us. So I want to conclude this sermon just with a, a minute or two of silence. I'm going to sit right here. And I'm going to sit before this cross, just like all of us, and I'm just going to bring to mind a few of the things that I need to confess, that I need to bring before God, knowing that I will receive his forgiveness. Make your confession known to God.